You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. My name is Danny Anderson, and for my day job, I teach English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to listen, and I really hope you get something good out of this show. Uh, Donald Trump's election, for better and worse, mostly worse, has become a seismic event, I think, in American history. And I think that in the next few years and even decades, we'll still be grappling with what his election, A, says about our political and social lives, and B, subsequently does to our political and social lives. Um, But today we're going to be talking about how, since 2016, race has emerged as perhaps the preeminent problem for evangelicalism to the point where we need to acknowledge that much of what we have called evangelical Christianity is really better thought of as white Christianity. Uh, Now, I trust my audience, and I know that if you're a regular listener, you're probably someone who's already comfortable challenging your own assumptions about the world. But I do want to warn you that this episode, by its very nature, is probably going to challenge a lot of orthodoxies and assumptions about church unity and what it means to be part of the quote-unquote kingdom and, and what have you. Um, So I'm just going to get right into it. Uh, My guest today is Tamara Johnson, who recently wrote a piece for a publication called The Witness, which I highly recommend uh, in general, by the way. It's a great, um, great little magazine. Um, And her piece was titled For Those Who Stay. Uh, And in this essay, she recounts her own reasons for leaving her white church and returning to the traditions and social spaces of what she calls the black church. Uh, It's kind of a follow up piece to another essay she wrote called If You Love Me, Do Your Homework, and I'll put links to both of those pieces in the show notes, which can be found at sectarianreviewpodcast.com, and also be sure to like the show's Facebook page uh, and continue the conversation there. I'm sure that the show is going to incite a lot of thoughts from you, the listener, and consider yourself invited to share them with the show. And me in particular. If, if I'm a jerk, let me know. Uh, also, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, Tamara is a good friend of mine, and so I'm kind of predisposed to agree with her argument uh, from the beginning, and I'm certainly happy to speak with her again. Tamara, how's it going? It's good. How are you doing, Danny? Um, I'm doing really good here in Pennsylvania. Um, um, Tamara, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? I have to say, you're probably the most interesting person I know. <laughs> so, uh, oh wow! Can, uh, oh my goodness! <laughs> wow! I, I I didn't know I had to do an acceptance speech at the beginning of this for that high honor. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can tell you about myself, and I, I talked to you a little bit before that I I get nervous whenever I have to say what I do. Um, I was I was homeschooled for five years, and I think when you're homeschooled, you learn how to do a thousand things and not really specialize in one thing. You just follow your different interests, um, and I think that's how I managed to write two articles for uh, a publication while I work as a scientist, while I obviously attend church, and uh, there's a lot of different things. So the easiest way I can describe myself is an aspiring polymath, uh, aspirational polymath. Um, that's I wouldn't put myself at Alexander Hamilton or Thomas Jefferson levels, but um, 
I, I would like to say that I love a lot of different things and what and writing is one of those things and um, I've, I've neglected that part of my life for a long time um, and recently I realized I've needed to write and so that's how I ended up churning out those two articles for that publication but um, if anyone cares yeah I'm my Enneagram is four I just found that out recently and my Myers-Briggs is INFJ <laughs> I need, I've been seeing Enneagram all over the, uh, the Twitters yeah. here right, recently, and I really don't even know what that is. I'm going to have to look into that. Uh, so, I just caught up with it, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's helpful. And it's, so your science, your field of science is sort of outdoors, right? I, I, you, had a, you were interviewed yes. by NPR, actually, right? Um, oh, <laughs> that, that old thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I was. Um, I... I tend to study wildlife. Um, I'm, I'm hesitant to t- say exactly what I do, but yes, I did get caught up in NPR for actually a few um, a few articles. One was for my actual job, and one was when I was volunteering with Outdoor Afro, um, where I, I got to lead hikes for African Americans in the Atlanta area. And it's a nationwide um, organization, but I got to do it for a few years. And I'm not a part of it right now, but I love it very much. So yes, I do have the distinction to be followed on Twitter by one of the NPR reporters, which I'd say is, again, a very high liberal honor. <laughs> and, and which automatically makes you the most interesting person I know, as I said. So um, so uh, let's jump right into this. Tomorrow. This is... Um, uh, it's a heavy it's a heavy subject right um and so uh and let's kind of Mm -hmm. get into it um maybe slowly here how did you find yourself originally in this uh largely white church and how did the uh, events of 2016 affect you in that space yeah it's how do i start without starting from beginning um, I was born and raised in the church, not literally, but figuratively. Um, and as I mentioned, I was homeschooled for five years. And so um, with that, I our main social events revolved around the church. I fell in love with Jesus, became a Christian when I was six or seven years old, and took off from there. I attempted to run away from the faith for six months in college. It didn't work. And I subsequently got really involved um, Ironically, well, I guess not ironically, interestingly, with the Asian American church, probably Asian American church for my entire college career. And so um, I just wanted something different. I'm from Atlanta. I don't know if you knew that, like sociologically speaking, it's called Black Mecca of, of America. It's just a lot of black power, a lot of black, um, and I say that in a technical sense, a lot of um, strong black community that's gone back for generations. Obviously, that's where Martin Luther King is from and a lot of the major civil rights leaders. And so I was born and raised in this cradle of black excellence. And so, um, I mean, I the way I explain it is in my high school, we used to do black history projects in our science classes. Um, so we, we were always very connected to who we were as black people. And I appreciated that, um, especially since um, I'm from, and this is probably going to come up a little later. I'm from a half immigrant family. My mom's family's from Barbados and a half military family. My dad's family was primarily in the military. And so those are, those are two different types of American experiences, um, both like first generation as well as like that like transient military generation that uh, I found myself in. So it's like I'm from the deep south, but also from a, a family that's from a different place and from a family that um, is from all over America. 
So all that to say, I, I was steeped in many different black experiences. And so I was very interested in what my faith would look like in different churches. So that led me to the Asian American church in college. And then when I went to grad school in Athens, Georgia, um, I was I was led to a predominantly white church just purely because, um, honestly, I liked the music and the teaching. <laughs> I appreciated that the pastor believed in science. I'm a scientist, and that was something that was very important to me. Uh, I can't tell you that I thought to myself, hmm, it would, what would it be like to be around people that didn't look like me? I just was drawn to the atmosphere. I was drawn to the way church was done, and it was different from the way that the, the church that I grew up in, but it was similar to the church that I had been in in college. So uh, I, I, I treated it kind of like fantasy football. I opened up a bunch of browsers for all the different churches in Athens and read the mission statement, read, listened to a few sermons, and then made my choice. And just so happened that the church I landed in for, um, I believe, six years, uh, it met all the criteria that I wanted, and I thoroughly enjoyed myself while I was there. Um, and then... Um 2016 happens, right? And and <laughs> you, like a lot of other um, African Americans, um, start experiencing your space of worship a little differently. Um, and do you want to talk in kind of more general terms about that? Sure. <sighs> Danny, Danny, Danny. <laughs> it actually, you know, I've done a lot of reflection. And it did not start November 8th, 2016. That was the major catalyst but it began way before 2016. I, I venture to say it began with Trayvon Martin when he was killed by George Zimmerman in 2013. Um, that's when the, I guess, my heart started shifting. Um, I should back up. Remember that I mentioned that my family's from, is, is half black immigrant, half black military. They're actually very conservative. Those are two uh, African-American groups that tend to lean conservative. Um, and I highly recommend, uh, as I've mentioned in articles, that you do your homework to understand why. Um, but it, it just so happens that that's a, a viewpoint that uh, immigrants and military members tend to espouse. And that was what I was raised in. So I was raised Republican, <laughs> even though I was had all these many different black experiences. And so um, I know all of the conservative arguments and I'm aware of all of the um, feelings about like black on black crime or um, why people should pull their pants up, et cetera, et cetera. But there was something about uh, the Trayvon Martin case, as well as, let's see, Michael Brown, um, St uh, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, um, Eric Garner. When the Black Lives Matter movement began, my heart started hurting and it was hurting simply like because the people that looked like me seemed to be uh, getting gunned down in the street uh, almost uh, like completely without any uh, I guess like oh, sorry I'm gonna start over with the Black Lives Matter movement I, I was hurting simply because people that looked like me were were dying yeah. at the hands of state state sanction uh, like people who are supposed to protect us. And it was simple. It wasn't a political point. It, it just purely was, I see this. I, I, I hurt for this. And, and now I'm sad. And I remember um, the night that the George Zimmerman case was closed when he was acquitted of all charges of murdering um, Trayvon Martin. 
I was I was sad. It was a Saturday night, and I went to church Sunday morning. And someone asked me, like, "How are you doing?" I was like, "I'm actually really sad." Um, George Zimmerman got acquitted, and I started talking. And I I still remember like it was yesterday the look in the person's eyes, like they just kind of glazed over. Um, and I, I'm grateful that they didn't like offer a, a political rebuttal. But I just remember that I was like, "What I'm saying, they're not connecting with." That just this simple like this sucks. It it was like that empathy couldn't be reached. And I was just like, oh, maybe people don't understand where black people are coming from. And so um, luckily there were other (laughs) unarmed black men getting murdered. And so I had other opportunities. I say luckily, extremely, extremely darkly, ironically. ironically, um, When other cases came up, I started having conversations with my predominantly white surroundings, just simple conversations where I said, this is why black people are hurting. And what I found was those conversations always led to, well, what about black on black crime? Or, well, you know, black people should get their stuff together. Well, what about black abortions? Well, 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 well. And so my personal pain was being turned into a political sparring match. And so it felt like we moved from this like, a, a potential for empathy, a place that a potential of em- for empathy to um, I'm right and you're wrong. And that was horrible, Danny. I'm not going to lie. I was shocked. I wasn't ready for it, to be completely honest. Again, see my background. Um, I never I never got the talk that they talk um, that some people are starting to discuss where uh, parents say, you know, if you ever encounter a police, put your hands on the wheels, make sure they don't see you. Like people are going to naturally suspect you. Um, I came from a place of privilege where I, my parents did feel like they both went to college. They say, do what you can, um, be as respectable as possible and you'll be okay. And so I wasn't ready for, um, like I did everything I was supposed to do. I had the Eurocentric name. I have the nondescript accent. I have the two college degrees from two very good schools and I have a respectable job. I wasn't ready for the world. Like I, th- I thought I presented to the world a respectable package where I deserve respect. And what I received was just the pressures of society, like just honest, true pressures of racism that was seeping everywhere. And I, I was at first shocked, but then I felt um, I took up a new resolve to help do what I can to take down those pressures on my own. I was like, but the people I love, the people that don't look like me, the white people that I love are reasonable. So therefore, with reasonable conversations, this can happen. Like, we, they'll, they'll understand. Because we both love Jesus. And so if I explain to them that Jesus loves the unarmed black man who keeps dying in the street, then they'll understand as well. And so I would say at that very long roundabout, November 16, November 8th, 2016 that was the time when I said people don't want to care uh and that's obviously a a general statement but I had to reckon like I was just lying in bed in rage in sadness in grief in mourning when I had to accept that wow maybe people just really don't want to care like maybe my, my pain really is a political point for them and it, it was it was it, it knocked me off my feet I could barely eat the next day and and I remember some of the Facebook conversations that we uh, got into the next couple of days a lot of people were like why is everyone so upset that like it, it like it, it's about Democrats losing why are they being such sore losers I was like no no gosh like it's not about sore losing like we just listened to this man denigrate like people of color all over 
the country and the world for not just last year, but he, he, he got into politics from denigrating the first black president. Um, we know his rhetoric. It, it was loud and clear that he had no intentions for seeing us as the same, like as equal American citizens. And I voted accordingly. And so it wasn't just, it wasn't about preserving the democratic party. It was about preserving the dignity of the least of these. And it took me a long time. Like I mentioned, I, I've seen myself as respectable for a very long time, but I had to accept that I was the least of these. And so November 8th, 2016 was when I was like, okay, we are in a, a major, like people don't necessarily want to care or rather they don't know how to care. And I don't necessarily need to keep falling on my sword over and over again. Um, and uh, being the person who's trying to save others when they need a savior to change their hearts. Not, and I'm not that savior. Jesus is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, before we get to the next question, I'm going to um, say goodbye to our Facebook audience to encourage them uh, to listen to the whole episode when it gets released tomorrow. Um, you can find a link to it here on the Facebook page. Um, if you subscribe to the show, of course, you'll get it automatically on iTunes. But I think you're uh, in for a, a very important conversation. Uh, and I do encourage you to, uh, to come back uh, tomorrow when it's ready. Um, and so, Tamara, um, back to the iTunes audience out there. Um, you're <laughs> part then of this bigger movement, right? And so, what is your, oh, guess sense, I guess, of the scale and the scope, I guess, of this um, what you've termed Black Exodus in your article? Um, well, I, I borrowed that term for the New York Times article that touched on it. Um, I don't remember the author, but it came out a few months before I wrote my own article. Um, but when I read that article, I was like, oh, I'm not alone. So the scale is bigger than what I thought it was. Um, I, I, I venture to say there are many people out there. I, I don't want to put a number on it, but um, I've talked to a lot of, or I'm a part of many groups of those who exited uh, both online and uh, in person, the witness being one of those groups where you have a lot of people who were raised in the black church and we dabbled, if you will. <laughs> we, we, I think we didn't necessarily um, feel a sense of urgency. And, and I think we've all been lulled for the past several decades into a sense of, okay, we're unified. We've had the barbecues. People have gotten up on stage. Arms were linked. People cried. You had the black worship leader. You had the um, white rapper. We're good. <laughs> and um, I think there, the scale is that you have thousands of people who um, realize that they're sitting next to someone who's maybe part of that 81% who voted for a man who actively uh, spoke against their interests. Um, and I, I don't know how large the scale is, but I, I'd say there are thousands out there. Um, and whenever I talk to someone else who's a part of the exodus or maybe considering being a part of that exodus, they're always like, I thought I was the only one. Um, you mentioned in your last podcast that we overuse the term gaslighting. Yeah. Um, so I'm open to a synonym, <laughs> but the word I think of is is gaslighting or someone lighting gas. <laughs> I couldn't think of another word. Um, where if we bring up race in the church and say this is a gospel issue, people say, no, it's not. Stick to the gospel. Yeah. Um, and we, you have a lot of people like me who actually received a lot of power in the church, in, in my white church, um, and a lot of prestige, if you will. I, I know that I was respected. I had a lot of personal relationships 
And so I think um, those were solid. But then when I started speaking out on systemic issues, at first there was grace given, if you will. Um, and then there was um, light rebukes. And then eventually I feel like it became kind of a hostile situation where I had to start my ways of approaching these topics had to become uh kind of like black belt level mental uh, karate and how to connect people to the gospel issue. Um, and so what I, I, I realized that I kept trying to connect white churches to the idea of social justice. And I, I, I'm speaking generally, but based on my research, I think that naturally because uh, the American church, the white American church has been at the top of most power structures, you've you've, uh, I guess, ascended Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so you can focus on self-actualization. And with that, like being able to focus on self and personal relationships, you have the luxury, the privilege to abandon the systemic uh, issues that might be bringing other people down. And so I realized that I was below, like I thought I was in that place where I could self-actualize, but I couldn't like I had to turn my eye towards the systemic issues and I think there's just a lack of understanding because that's just the the way the white American church has like been able to run is it's all about personal relationships and so when I kept trying to I guess elevate social justice issues there came a point where I realized you know what I think I'm just trying to make my white church into a black church (laughs) and so maybe I should just go back (laughs) like and give grace, you know, still love those relationships and be grateful for learning how to be good at relationships. Um, and, but if I care so much, um, I'm not, I'm not crazy to believe that this is a gospel issue. And there are lots of people out there who believe this is a gospel issue. And I can join those churches. I can join those Facebook groups. I can listen to those podcasts. Um, and I don't have to stay here. I don't owe anyone that the only allegiance I owe is Jesus Christ. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty much it. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, just to follow up on a couple things you said there, one of the things it isn't, it isn't only voting for Trump, right? There's also this right. movement in trying to then justify, or even in some cases, sanctify um, other things that he does because you voted for him out of your Christian you know, worldview. And so um, right. I, I think that there was a, a twisting, frankly, of, uh, of the gospel. And part of that twisting includes the neglect of the social justice issues that you're talking about. Right. Um, right. And, and I think that that's one of the more kind of galling things. And, and sort of in my darker moments, I, I wonder if one of the outcomes of this um, period that we're in is going to be a, a a redefinition of evangelical and are people going to mm. kind of stay within those the good parts of those traditions but leave behind others who are just kind of in this kind of white mindset that they are calling Christianity right right um, yeah and also um, to follow up with uh, the gaslighting term and it just so happens the episode that will come out after this one um, uh, next week uh, if you're listening it might be confusing down the road but uh, we're actually <laughs> discussing with uh, Derek Varn terminology that gets thrown around a lot and gaslight is one of the terms that we talk about in this first episode um, and I honestly think that in the context that with that you're in your experience it actually does apply because it, it is mm. a space in which 
you know, you're sort of under the power of other people and they're trying to convince you that your perception of reality is not real. Right. And that that does, mm. I think, fall into the actual definition of that term. Um, and so thank you for your validation. <laughs> well, well, not that you need it, but uh, no, I just wanted to kind of yeah. um, uh, make sure that my own you know, usage, my own kind of. Uh, critique of overusing that uh, uh, that term isn't applied to this. I think it actually does apply to this. And so, um, yeah, so I, I think I think you're right on right on the money there. Um, and I will put a link to that New York Times article as well in the uh, in the show notes um, with everything else for this. Good deal. Um, so uh, can we step before we get to the current essay? Can we step back uh, a couple months sure. to an earlier essay that you wrote for The Witness, which is also I mean, is the history of this publication sort of coinciding with what you're talking about here when, I would say so yeah and it seems to be a, and and go I ahead. go on are you sure no, you can no, go? go ahead I am not a part of it uh like on staff and I had the privilege of attending one of their live recording podcasts so I I speak mainly as a, a lay member uh and I just say it, it's been a part of a lot of healing for me but what I, I can speak to is that they changed their name from the reformed african-american network to the witness, a black Christian collective, intentionally to highlight the major like need from just saying, we're like you guys, we're just black, to, okay, black Christians need their own space, because right now it feels like the white church is failing them, or, you know, again, using general terms. Yeah, and, and it's really great writing. Um, and that's why you got included because your essays are really great. Um, but uh, and they also there's a podcast you, you pointed me to called Pass the Mic that is um, associated yes. with them. And I just to give them a free plug. Um, I think that it's worth uh, it's worth checking out. So um, by all means, this seems to be um, uh, a group of thinkers uh, and believers who are coming together to represent what we're talking about. And so this is a movement of some sort right now. For sure, um, it is a movement. Yeah, and, and it's and it's an important one. And so, go. But going back to the previous essay you wrote for them, if you love me, do your homework. Um, it's about not bearing the responsibility for explaining things to people who really should be responsible for educating themselves about this stuff. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about that essay because I think it does set up where you end up going. In the, sure. In the, yeah. Okay. 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 Um, <laughs> sorry, I've got my like feisty voice on because <laughs> it took me a while to get there. I don't know. Danny, I'm a people pleaser. I'm not going to lie. I'm a middle child. I'm the mediator. I'm a fan of taking the hits yeah. so that ultimately peace will be achieved. So the, publishing this was a big deal for right. me. Posting it, I, I when it published, I almost didn't post it on my Facebook page. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was this close because it was completely it, it was against what my natural rhythms of being the person that helps everyone feel good in the room and I'm a natural empath etc and so I acknowledge that it would ruffle feathers so that's my um, major preamble I had uh, lunch with someone on the Saturday a, a Saturday the day before I wrote this article um, someone who still attends one of the, the, the church that I had left six months before. I think it's been about a year now. Um, I attended because I had received a lot of messages um, from people saying like, we miss you. How are you doing? Let's meet up. And if you recall, I, I know that um, personal relationships are a big deal 
um, in churches, and I, and I love those personal relationships. Right. Um, and so I, I, it wasn't just like, oh, let me go ahead and talk to my fans. It really was like, yeah, I do love so and so. Let me connect with them. Um, it, it was not the first time I had done it in the six months that I left the church. And for me, I thought I could do it. Um, I could do it until you know, forever, because I was like, well, you know, we have love there. And and the interaction overall was very pleasant. I really enjoyed it. But in that interaction, it followed a similar trend of people saying, well, things aren't that bad, right? Like, I know you left because, like, a vague general reasoning of you feel like, you know, racism is an issue and people don't talk about it, but, like, we're good, right? That person literally said, like, our church is good, right? And so I had to sit down and explain, well, think of it like, we as able-bodied citizens um, are not necessarily aware of all the stairs every single place, but someone in a wheelchair is. And so when someone in a wheelchair attends uh, or comes into our space, all of a sudden we have to be sensitive to those issues and we become, we, like if we, we can become good advocates and allies if we listen to the person in the wheelchair right. and acknowledge that they, we need to be more ramps. And said, so that's like white people, white people are the able-bodied people in this situation and people of color, uh, LGBT, it's, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are the people in the wheelchairs. We're in a society that was not built for us. And like the, you expend a lot of energy saying um like please just believe us when we say that this like this world is not for us it was not built for us and we need your help to make it to bring equity to make it a, a more even playing ground because if we say we're all god's people then let's make it like let's act accordingly and that conversation was good but i remember like i got obviously like extremely heated and the person got up and went to the bathroom and then came back and changed the subject abruptly and i was just like oh like it wasn't that they changed the subject that stressed me out it was the like it felt as though they couldn't handle the conversation anymore and for me as someone who's has to deal with racism on a regular basis um even if it's not like the sexy cool kkk white nationalist racism it is the like walking into a room and knowing that you are the only black person and people are going to judge you accordingly and having to code switch and having to um be everyone's representative for black people um it hurt to feel as though like i guess the emotions of my white friend took uh higher priority over like the actual pain that and suffering that me and other black people are feeling and and all the while I'm being the educator all the while like while I'm hurt I'm walking people and holding their hands and like while we like are trying to figure out how to dismantle structures that are are bringing down people purely because of the color of their skin um you have a lot of people who are just aren't not doing the work like America's been around for 400 something years like chattel slavery will turn 400 years old next year i mean la uh, next year at least that's the beginning of it and like i'm i'm a, a descendant of people where my last name johnson that's not the last name of my ancestors that's the last name of my ancestors slave right. owners you know and that's something that we have to walk around with every day most black people if you know they're not from straight from the continent of africa and so if you're looking for a testament uh, to white supremacy you don't have to look to confederate stat statues just look at black people like look at and uh, I'm sorry I'm about to go on a tear but basically I left that <laughs> interaction and I agreed to meet up with someone a couple of days later and I remember that Sunday I was on a walk and I was just like nope not doing this anymore I don't I don't 
owe people basic knowledge about how to have empathy for people who aren't like them. I don't owe that lesson, that history lesson. Um, I drew from my own experience of reading about the Holocaust when I was in elementary, middle, high school and feeling so strongly about it and, and really empathizing with Jewish people. And I'm from Southwest Atlanta. I didn't know one Jewish person during that time. And yet I was able to like just understand simply that this is a human's rights issue and I care and I hope this never happens again. And so for me, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm playing into this system. There's something ultimately broken. And right now it's I'm not the one that's broken. And so I, I will take a stand and assert some dignity um, and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I think that if you if people really, really care about racism, if people are brokenhearted by what I just shared, you know, like if people are brokenhearted by um, like just like mass incarceration or like the, the poverty gap between uh, black Americans or, or Latinx communities and white Americans. And if you are really brokenhearted, they'll do that work. You know what I mean? They'll, they'll be a part of bringing the kingdom of God to earth. Um, they'll, they'll, they'll latch on to the beatitudes of caring for those who are poor in spirit um, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so I, it was less about like, screw you guys. And more about like, I'm, I believe you, brother, you, sister, can be called higher and deeper um, to do more. Yeah. And you've just made a great case for why this kind of issue is a gospel issue, right? Because what you're saying, the metaphor that you used with the disabled people, um, if you, it just makes you, if you feel worse about me being uncomfortable that you haven't made your space right. available for than, than you do about making your space available, then that shows a self-centeredness and a lack, a lack right. of other um, centeredness, otherness, whatever, whatever the right, right term would be there um, it, towards them. And the same thing yeah, applies uh, to not educating yourself um, about why many, many people are alienated and lonely in the church. Right. And I, I mean, it's centering white comfort over black pain. You know, yeah. hearing about racism is pr like and the, and the pain that comes from that is prioritized and over actual people actually dealing with the effects of racism you know it, it's it's insane it, it's 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 not great to me and and i i felt like i was being dried up to a husk yeah. because it just seems so clear to me and like i said i had to come to my own uh appreciation and awareness um like i said starting with my conservative roots and getting to where i am now so therefore i have grace for people who maybe aren't where i am now um but i also uh, feel like there's truth in that you need to do some work to get not not to be like me come to your own conclusions have your own ministry but um I think there's work that needs to be done and and we might talk about this later but like I guess I'm, I'm tired of people approaching me like it felt like the conversations about race and race relations like I was the opportunity for people to not feel racist right. and that was again white comfort was prioritized over black pain and so they heaped their conversations, those questions that no one asks, um, to, on me. Like I, I like maybe I'm the only person of color in their sphere. Maybe I was the only person of color that they trust emotionally or intellectually. But it just became too much of a burden to bear. And I loved one of my favorite bot, black podcasters referred to these guys as Nicodemus, like coming to you in the middle of the night. Like you don't, you're not going to like the statuses that we post on Facebook. You're not going to talk to your relatives who you like shake your head and just like, oh, this is hard. You're not going to do that like footwork. Um, 
because out of being polite and out of preserving white feelings, but you are going to come to your black friend and be like, but I'm good, right? Like seek absolution and exoneration for me. And like I said, it took me a little bit to understand that. At first I was like, wow, people are changing. It's happening. But then it it happens enough. And 81% of white evangelicals vote for Trump. Like that was when I was like, okay, all right. It's like, I work on behalf of the environment. That's my job. And I have lots of people shaking, like nodding their heads saying, that's so cool what you do. And then they vote against like, the interests of the environment. And so like, I've, I have plenty of experience. I'm a woman, and so I'm used to like these interactions. Like, you know, name a margin, and I'm, I'm not in everyone, but I'm in quite a few. You know, I've got, I've got a lot of those boxes ticked off. So I've seen it in other realms. I just was kind of blindsided by having to see it in the church. Yeah. And, and it's a moral issue, and people have a moral obligation to educate themselves about, I mean, as an act of empathy um, um, and just caring right. about your brothers and sisters, right? And so, yeah. Right. That political issue that we have right now is um, overwhelming their capacity to have compassion, <laughs> I think. If, not to right. be too preachy myself. But I also wonder, just sure. as an aside, if the way that evangelicalism has constructed church as a this worship experience where you get recharged for the week uh, and you have this spiritual <laughs> high moment. If that's why that contributes, I think to sure. why they don't want to have these uncomfortable conversations. Like you're ruining, you're, sure. you're harshing my mellow or something. Right. And so, uh, <laughs> so I, I, we're all drug addicts. <laughs> we're addicted I mean, to the vibe. Dang you. Hillsong. <laughs> just the opiate of the masses, if you will. Um, you got so, us. Uh, you got us. Said that once, I don't remember. Um, but anyway, um, I love it. So, uh, just as an aside there, maybe, uh, for a, a future mm-hmm. podcast, but, um, so sure. uh, in the, the most recent essay for those who stay, um, and again, find links to all these on, um, on the Facebook page and on the show notes, uh, Charlottesville carries a special significance. It's sort of a seminal moment for you. Can you talk about that mm-hmm. moment? Certainly. Um, so I had just taken a lot of the rage and frustration after November 8th, 2016, and I agreed to co-lead a racial reconciliation Bible study in the white church. I think it went well. I'm not going to lie. Like, I, I won't sit here and say we shouldn't have done it. I I wouldn't do it again, but I at the moment, I thought, okay, this is great. Like, I know we're not going to solve racism in a summer. That's fine. Um, I was willing to lay down my cross and, and, and lead this Bible study. Um, I... Charlottesville happened, I believe, Friday and Saturday, and I was laying on my couch, uh, scrolling through Twitter, watching the live feeds. I saw the guy drive the car through and killed Heather Heyer through the crowd. Um, And I was so shocked that I I, I didn't seek out, I didn't text anyone from church. I I think there was one person that I texted from church. And to that person I texted, I'm not going to church tomorrow. Um, The people that I reached out to were, I think mostly non-Christians or the spaces that I sought were uh, mostly outside of the church. They're definitely outside of the church body that I was a part of because I'd been through this, you know, unarmed black person dies, like major like uh, racist or racist uh, issue or event happens. And I walk into church and I have to just be okay with people not talking about it, people being unaffected by these issues. And if they are affected, they'll take to those comments and talk about, but what about black on black crime? Which I refuted over and over and over again. And people stopped 
commenting publicly and then started sending me private messages. Say, for instance, when they killed the Charleston Nine in the, in the um, I can't remember the name of the church, but the Charleston Nine, they went to an African-American church and killed nine people, a white nationalist did. And someone reached out to me and they said, well, I, I sympathize with this because they're Christian. They couldn't sympathize with them just because like someone sought them out because of their race. They was like, well, because they're Christian, that's when I, because that's where my empathy will lie. What's wrong with that? And they reached out to me in my DMs and I was just like, okay. Like, and of course I responded back because I was living in an age where I felt like I needed to. I'm over that now. Um, but Charlottesville was a seminal moment because like I just, it was like the moment in the movies where you just have all these flashbacks and you think about walking in church Sunday after Sunday and knowing that you're going to have this emotional high. You're going to be blessed by those chords, the sweet G, C, D, E minor chords. Someone's going to say something. They're going to, like, someone's going to pray for you. The tears will be shed. It's going to be so great, but you're going to still walk out of that sanctuary and have a black body and still be in grief and still be worried about, like, increasingly worried about, like, your safety and the safety of the people that you love. I remember when Jordan Davis died he was a 16 year old um he was playing loud music and the guy shot into their vehicle i think it was michael dunn and he said his explanation was i'm tired of hearing that rap crap and he shot into it and i thought about it i was like my brother is around jordan davis's age he's a a christian he's a six foot one looming man with a beard and he loves jesus and he at the time was in college and was a part of a christian ministry loved christian rap Easily, my brother could have pulled up to a gas station and to someone else, he'd be like, look at all those thugs listening to that rap music. And easily, he could have been a Jordan Davis. Why do I have to stress out about the safety of my brother just because he looks a certain way and other people will act accordingly and make decisions about whether he should live or not? Why? And why does the church constantly fail on addressing that and then vote against like vote and and say all lives matter like when they hear black lives matter you can say pro-life but you can't say black lives Mm -hmm. matter and so with that i was like i'm over it i can't do this anymore like i'm first of all like today i'm too weak so i'm not going to go to a place where i just know it's not a place of comfort for people like me in their distress it's just not period but like i need to make decisions as like take the respectability that i have you know being the the safe black person and decide do i want to keep being that safe black person that white people trust and i'm not the one that people lock their cars in you know i'm the one who loves 30 rock and you know punch brothers and npr you know even though i also love lupe fiasco and kendrick lamar etc um i'm i'm the safe black am i going to keep leaning into my privilege and like cloaking myself in it or am I going to throw that off and go join the people that I love because my safety has been threatened as well and it took me a long time probably longer than what some people would think was appropriate but it happened and that was the day that I was like I can't like Nazis and the KKK are literally marching in the street and I won't go any place where like I get gaslighted again and people tell me that it's not a big deal yeah um, and, and you had mentioned in, in your last talk um, the, the pro-life issue, right? Um, abortion does seem to be a big kind of wedge issue in keeping people from focusing on race too, right? <laughs> Duh. I mean, it's the, it's the preeminent wedge issue of cultural conservatives. Can I, can I go off, go, Danny? Go off. I, I have to bleep cuss can words, I go off? so that yeah. would save me time if you don't swear. Uh, I, I, I'm in my mom's house, so I feel like the cuss meter, <laughs> just like it's a, just a natural sensor. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> I can't believe 
how much like like the disconnect between pro-life and the idea of Black Lives Matter, especially because I have well-meaning, well-intentioned, sweet white ladies looking me in the eye and saying, I care about you. I just care about abortion more. Like it's a, a, a give or take, like one or the other. Um, and I think, again, that comes back to that like un, like lack of experience with the personal issues. And I, I'll hear the testimonies for sure. I understand that, you know, some people have had personal experiences with abortion. I understand their, their love and idea, especially like you have mothers who can't even fathom the idea of doing that. Um, and so I, I understand where people are coming from. And that's when I ask them to listen to the idea of like bringing up like wages so that people have living rates so they can support those lives. Um, that's when I say like if you care so much like when I, whenever people talk to me about like well you know black babies are the ones that get aborted the most. It, it's never said in a way of like therefore I'm going to go befriend black people and and talk to them about why. It's said in kind of an accusatory tone. It's said in like a what's wrong with you people? Like, what is wrong with your community? Like, it, it's a it's a moral condemnation. It's it's a, and I think with that, that can be like by extension used to say, therefore we won't say Black Lives Matter because you guys can't, you don't even know what to do with your lives. Mm. Um, it, so I think with that, I, I get frustrated because again, I, I don't want to say people don't want to care, but I, I think it's sad that it gets stuck in the political mindset. How do you have so much like, love and compassion for these unborn babies, which I, I do too, to be clear. I, I, I completely understand where people are coming from. But then when you have someone look you in the eye and say, I'm hurting, like, you're like, well, black on black crime. Like, where does, where's that disconnect? Like, it, I, and I understand that like, sometimes there is that like, you don't deserve to live or like that moral judgment of like, you've done what you can and you, you get the, res, um, you get, what you ask for like you've you've done these bad things and therefore you deserve mass incarceration etc but i think that's racism in itself and you should ask yourself why you are so quick to make a judgment on someone's life or maybe that person should have followed the police's orders and therefore they wouldn't be lying dead on the street for four hours like michael brown was um like you can make those judgment calls on on living breathing people who are saying i i'm hurting like like actual systemic poverty, actual like systemic issues that have been weighing on our community since the inception of this country are still weighing on us. And you say, no, they aren't. Get it together. Like, so I, I'm so like, I'm, I'm baffled, like how pro-birth people are as to how pro-life they possibly could be. And with that, they're able to like sacrifice the lives of people who are already here for like this conception and and i know i'm like i've probably lost several people maybe i don't know i i know you have a certain uh demographic that you speak to but like i i'm just like i'm, I'm just a little baffled by like that disconnect and I, I actually know a lot of black people who are pro-life you know and i'm speaking as an african-american woman so that's who i'm speaking I, i'm not touching on every single marginalized group but i will say i know lots of black people who are politically liberal, socially conservative, and they would 100% be on the other side of the picket fence with pro-life people. But then you, I think what overrides um, that unity is the racism. <laughs> and and so like something's gone off here, like that, like people, like you wrap yourself in, like 
people can be racist without like being racist. Like no one, no one is racist, but racism happens. You know, like you can be super upset about patriotism and why NFL players are kneeling and, and, and wrap that in like Christianity or like your love for the flag, but completely miss the point on um, like, like hearing the cries of people who have lived different lives from you. And so like, I, I just feel like if I were to actually explain like what it was like um, to be pro-life on my side when I say Black Lives Matter, and like if I if I was able to say that to someone who says that they're pro-life, and and they were able to actually hear it, then I think we could get somewhere. But from what my experience, I, I feel like they it always gets stuck at well, I don't care. Like you know, like we have to make, shape this country and we have to shape the policies in this very narrow subset of ideals like running ramshackle over people who have been run ramshackle over the system time and again. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is that, you know, you could just sort of believe that abortion is bad, right? And you don't have to yeah. do anything. It doesn't change your life one way or right. the other um, for most people. Right. And so, um, right. but to kind of acknowledge what you're trying to get people to acknowledge it requires you to make a decision and actually change the way you live <laughs> certain things right and, right and I think it's it's terrifying and um, and it's uh, it's too difficult for some people and honestly and also there's like some issue with ownership of that term pro-life um, if you right. challenge people about whether they're actually pro-life because of, if you try to limit it to you mean you're pro-birth um, people go right ballistic <laughs> because you, oh yeah you've taken ape, away ape, their ape crap if you will <laughs> <laughs> That's my mom's meter. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> you've taken away their term, right? You've taken away their identity, yeah, um, by challenging mm-hmm. um, the, because they've they've defined that term so strictly, as you say, um, that it, it, to yeah. actually alter that definition is is a it's a it's a gobsmack, right? And so, um, and right, I, yeah, there's there's a, an insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable barrier there. Um, somehow, that abortion issue. Um, doesn't just divide Democrats and Republicans. It actually stands in the way of, uh, of racial um, con- reconciliation in the church, um, which is tragic. Um, and can I, can I just say that, like, it's what a privilege it is to, like, like the hill that you die on is somewhat of a, a hypothetical situation. Well, it's not hypothetical, but, you know, like, it's, a, it's an issue that, like, you're like, I hate that this happened, so I'm going to dedicate my life to it. All respect, but, like, unfortunately, the issues that I am now wrapped up in affect me and the people I love personally. Right. Um, like there it's an, it's a, it's a community thing. Like moving back to Atlanta, all of a sudden I was like, Oh, I'm not the only one that believes this. And so I, it, what a privilege that you get to sit at the top of the Hill and any, um, slight like breeze that makes it feel like you'll lose that power. Well, it, it's, is, it's likened to persecution. And man, I wish that was the persecution I had as opposed to actual oppression. You know, I wish, if only. Yeah, if only, right? Um, you're totally right. Yeah. Um, well, to continue here, we're kind of approaching our time here. So um, the, the article, mm-hmm. for those who stay again, um, has gotten quite a lot of comments. Um, and, and one issue sure. that some people have is in making, so one kind of critique, I guess, that some people are bringing is making a distinction between white and black church, which to them seems mm-hmm. like you're divisive and that it's a um, oh, sort of a, 
uh, an affront to the unity of God's of the body, right? Um, and so, uh, right, is this sort of a Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter type of debate? How do you <laughs> respond to that? Thoughtful pause. Uh, I have a lot of feelings, as I've mentioned, but I also believe in facts since I'm a scientist. And so I'm just going to state stark facts. The American church has been segregated from the jump. Like, when they gave slaves Bibles, they, they ripped out Exodus because it talked about, like, slaves getting free. Like, this, these are facts. I wish it was just, like, fan fiction, but these this really happened. The black church was the lead of the civil rights movement, you know what I mean? Like, you had white preachers getting up on Sunday in the 50s and 60s preaching against miscegenation and, 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 and integration. Like, that was, that was, people managed to, like, contort, like, their religion and their faith into these political issues that, you know, in the rear view were like, that's insane. That, that's, that's too much. But, um, I mean, these are just facts. And so, like, I, I heard of someone in 2016, I won't to, to disclose who, it was a, a black couple and a white couple who wanted, a, a black person and a white person who wanted to get married at a church in rural Georgia. I believe it was the city that you just lived in or close to it. Um, and they were turned away because they said they don't believe in un, marriages that are unequally yoked. That's 2016, Danny. <laughs> like, if I hadn't lived it, if I hadn't had someone look me in the eye, I'd be like, oh, no. I mean, that must have been several years. But that that's now. Um, the black church and the white church uh, is a fact. It's what it is. I see the merits of multi-ethnic churches. I do. Um, but my experience, my personal experience, not speaking as a sociologist, but speaking as a personal participant in churches, is that a lot of times multi-ethnic churches take on the form of whatever dominant community it is. It may be multi-ethnic in, in that the faces look different if you take a photo, but it still has like predominantly white uh, influences, be it the theology, be it uh, uh, the music that's played or the way that the church moves like I mentioned individualism versus the community mindset and so when I talked about white church black church I was just leaning on those facts like that there is there are white churches and they have a different culture from black churches which have a different culture from Asian churches that have different cultures from Latino churches so I'm not like trying to seed it under I don't think it's like all lives matter I think it's just acknowledging what we live in and honestly I got caught up um because I, I believed that um, churches were colorblind. Like I, I kind of made decisions on the churches that I went to because I believed um, that like we're all Christians. And so even if you don't know my experience, you can hear that experience and understand. And through um, unfortunate circumstances or unfortunate um, actual like events that happened to me, like racism happened within church walls. And for me, it just came to a point where I couldn't sit there anymore honestly i wish it, it was words that people said but sometimes it was just silence like pure silence like i noticed that there was a culture of silence and and i think that for people who are part of marginalized groups silence is violence like it's not just about again like burning crosses on people's yards when you just nod your head and get uncomfortable and then walk away and and go seek that high of personal relationships in Hillsong. No offense to Hillsong. I like Hillsong. Let the record show. But <laughs> it's just a convenient punching bag. Bless the, bless the Australian church. Bless Darlene Check. But I, um, I, when, you, when you, you feel that enough times, that silence, 
that the Nicodemuses who are will look you in the eye, but then still like do their best to um, connect with everybody else. Like I, it, it gets exhausting. I remember like when we led the racial reconciliation Bible study. Um, you had I had my co-leader saying, yeah, it's about racial reconciliation, but it's also about like reconciliation between gender and between sex and like the actual uh, curriculum was about race, but it felt like they were making that like making that concession, those concessions to make people feel more comfortable. And I just got I personally as a, a black person and got tired of and, and exhausted from like it felt like the culture was no longer for me. And that's why I went back Um Maybe it's for others. Everyone has different experiences. And so I think white church, black church, is I, all I'm doing is stating what is yeah. there. I, I, like, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I, I just, I'm just stating facts. And um, if, if I'm wrong, if someone throws a statistic that's you know verified and peer-reviewed that says there's actually more multi-ethnic churches where they take in the... the, the they take in the thoughts and experiences of every single congregant, then those that fall along cultural lines, I'll, I'll receive, I'll ask, I'll, I'll personally call up uh, the leaders of the witness and ask them to resend the article. But until that's the case, then here I am. Well, and, and also I think that it, from the position of the majority, right, there's a tendency to see what we do as transcending race, right? And so um, mm, there's a, there's the a way of thinking of, the evangelical church as just natural organic church and not in mm -hmm. influenced in, in springing out of whiteness right and out of white privileges right. uh and, and so um there's that's difficult for people for a lot of many people most maybe to uh to accept that there is a, a code that, that comes along with what you're considering what you think of as just natural it's actually got material right. sources um or uh, uh precedent Agreed. I mean, it's the, the, the metaphor I was thinking of was I just moved back to my mom's house from Athens and my mom lives in southwest Atlanta. It's very close to the largest airport in the world. And I've been here a week and I can't stop hearing airplanes, Danny. And I, every time I bring it up to my mom, she's like, what? What are you saying? I don't. What are you saying? And I'm like, I, I have to turn up the radio. I'm sorry. I have to turn up the TV and then turn it down again. She's like, what are you saying? Like when I'm talking on the phone, I, I can't stop hearing the planes. And for the first 18 years of my life, I never heard the planes, with the exception of 9-11 when I remember the planes went away. But then they came back and they seeded into the background. Yeah. And so I, I think that's the like what you're saying with the, the white church or the dominant culture. You don't notice when you're always in it. But when you join that place, like it's hard. Like you're like, how don't you guys hear that? Like it's drowning us out. And maybe for me, what like my pain um, from hearing that noise, from like feeling that like racist vibe, it it might stress other people out and they just want to get back to regular life. And I, I might be seen as crazy, but um, I guess I, I'm, I'm grateful that I do hear those noises. And I think that like, I, I've done a lot of soul searching in the past year and I, I've, I finally accepted, first of all, I did like, like divorce my idea like I had to change my own default of what was right what was Christian and I had to understand that there was a lot of cultural influence and seek out the face of Jesus and say what do you say about the marginalized what do you say about those people groups where are my blind spots what am I what planes am I not hearing yeah. and 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 be honest about that yeah and and so like as someone from the margins you're able to observe structures and institutional practices that someone in the middle 
can't. Um, it's the whole David Foster right. Wallace fish doesn't know it's in water sort of thing, right? Um, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And as we're talking, I, years ago, and I'm putting you on the spot here, hopefully you remember, we had <laughs> oh, a boy. conversation and, and you were talking about how the melting pot is a kind of a passe way of thinking about um, pluralism and a better, a better, was it Skittles in a jar or something? Um, Oh, did I yeah, say that? I distinctly remember this conversation <laughs> where each individual maintains their distinction, right? And yet sure. it, it doesn't, uh-huh. you don't lose your your essence, right? Uh, by, by joining right. this big group. And I think that, that the melting pot metaphor um, is what maybe the evangelical, the white evangelical church is holding on to. <laughs> and it should maybe advance right. to this. Uh, maybe it wasn't Skittles, but it was something along those lines. Sure. I like that. <laughs> I, I'm so profound. You're, <laughs> I told you, you're the most interesting you're right. person I, I know, right? Um. <laughs> I've told some of my interns don't follow me because I hide candy for myself. I'm, I'm not a role model. <laughs> Sorry, um, we're going to ask a question. <laughs> so, on a sort of related topic here, um, Martin Luther King gets kind of misused uh, a lot in mm-hmm. our liberal society, right? Um, we like to remember the the sort of holding hands, um, mm-hmm. you know. I have a dream speech, um, but we don't like to wrestle with what he was writing about in letter from Birmingham jail. Um, Do you want to talk, you mentioned him a little bit in, uh, in this essay. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. I mean, for one thing, Martin Luther King was tracked by the FBI. He was seen as a rabble rouser. He had the ear, the Nicodemuses of the white church at the time, but very few people spoke out in support of him. Like everyone wants to believe they do, but they didn't. Um, and his approval rating when he died was in the 30s. That's lower than our president right now. <laughs> like, think about that. Martin Luther King, who every other bo- boulevard is named after and has a, a statue in Washington, D.C., that man was not popular. And it, I, there are people alive who remember that and maybe aren't talking about that because, you know, everybody wants to paint their past as a lot. They're a lot better. They weren't the a part of the villainy, even if they weren't the villain. They weren't complicit in the villainy. Um, so I I love that. Like, I love that idea. Like, when I finally really started reading Martin Luther King's stuff, not just the uh, uh, the Black History Month quick, uh, the, the Chirons that say, like, oh, you know, like, one day there will be, like, my black children and white children will worship together and go to school together. When I really started reading the letter from the Birmingham jail, when he had language and and um, he articulated what I'd been feeling but didn't know how to ex- express the idea of the white moderate and how when people believe in what you're saying but aren't willing to put the work in to um, righting wrongs, um, those are more dangerous than the KKK. I was like, whoa, yes. Oh, wait, he wrote this in 1963. We're still feeling that right now. You know, like, oh, shoot. Like, that's the... That's the main thesis of all these conversations I've been having. Like, I wouldn't have wasted energy or time on these conversations. You know, no shade to the people, the white people that I love, because I I do believe, like, we do have to keep having these conversations. But I think if I had been girded with that knowledge from the jump, then maybe I would, I just would have real, I would be aware of the historical context that we were starting in. Um, I I liked when he mentioned, he talks about the tranquilizing drug of white gradualism. And we talked about that some with, again, prioritizing white comfort over uh, people of color's pain or or marginalized groups' pain. Um, 
uh, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. When you when you talk about like that that gradualism when someone's like I hear you, but not yet. Like think about those in the fifties and sixties who are like you make good points, Martin Luther King, but segregation is what we're going to have to espouse on Sundays because that's what people want. Like in the twenties, um, thirty. I'm sorry. Like after Reconstruction, you have what become is becomes known as the Bible Belt, also synonymously be called the Jim Crow right. South. Like you have. Christians taking part in lynching my ancestors, taking photos, sending those postcards to each other. You have children watching it. And then they went to church on Sunday. Maybe it happened before church. Maybe it happened after church. But it was a weekend affair. They used to like advertise it in school newspapers. And Brian Stevenson is a great... Uh, resource on this, the Equal Justice Initiative. But like, when I think about it, like, it's hard for me to even talk about it, Danny. Like, like this, this, this context that we're we're all living in of a country that calls themselves Christian, but also is unbelievably covered in blood and the blood of the citizens. Um, and so I, I guess like I, I like the idea that Martin Luther King was radical because now everyone thinks he's kind of tame like you know what i mean like we, we've managed to disneyfy martin luther king um and and i believe that 40 50 years from now we'll we're, we're gonna lionize other black lives matter leaders and we're gonna all say that we we were there all along um everyone's gonna believe that they're better than they were and with that I, i'm willing to take some of the like the hits i'm willing to lose friendships i'm willing to make people feel uncomfortable i'm willing to like like maybe say no this is beyond the conversation that i want to have i'm willing to tell people to do their homework i'm willing to not be the respectable black the safe black i'm willing to um just be another n-word for some people to be frank so that 10 15 years from now the kingdom of god um has advanced in in this world and in our country yeah I, I hope I answered your question. No, that, <laughs> I think I just got answer. I just I got mean, excited. I, yeah. Um, that's great. Um, yeah, um, I I'm just going to move on to the next question. I have nothing else to add to that. Okay. Um, and, and just sort of yeah. to wrap things up, um, your piece, mm-hmm. despite all this, is not uh, a polemic. It's not a, a call for people to leave, but rather it's advice mm-hmm. for those who don't. Uh, and I think you call them the witness community. Um, uh, and so, what <laughs> advice do you offer them in this article? Oh, and I, I struggled to not just like write for those who stay and then put one, one word, why? Because yeah. <laughs> that's not helpful and that's acting out of anger and that's acting out of like, I, I'm like harboring offenses at that point. And I don't want to do that because that's not what I'm called to do as a believer. And I, I, I thank God that he has let me um, let go a lot of hurts and pains, um, you know, to God be the glory truly. So um, the advice that I gave was, Essentially, I was talking to a younger Tamara, a, a Tamara who was eight years younger, um, who who did feel compelled, like who, who took the mantle of respectable, safe black, um, who took it up willingly and honor, saw it as an honor, like the concept that I uh, moved safely and um, like seamlessly through the white community with a lot of like power and authority that that, I loved that idea so I was talking to a younger Tamara um, and I hoped that it it landed for someone else Um, 
because it, it was based off some of the comments that I received from the first article where it felt like people were being kind of defensive and I was like wait what are you what are you defending right now like John Piper doesn't need your help right now like he that man has so much power like he doesn't need you nameless black woman who will you know what it feels like to be marginalized maybe you're not acknowledging it but you know what it feels like um like it was pretty much like an are you okay sis like are you are you healthy right now where you feel like you need to put run up and protect the most powerful from those who are crying out in pain from the boots like being under the boot of the powerful um so i guess the the advice that i give is similar to what i said in the article which is like um don't be afraid of the facts uh don't be afraid of acknowledging that you're black or brown or you know lgbt etc etc like don't be afraid even though some people say you should leave that leave that at the altar because only whiteness is accepted here um which they don't say it because you don't necessarily know it but like that's what's being communicated um you can bring all of the powerful like witnesses with you um you can bring the martin luther king who was a an ordained minister you can bring james cone who just passed away and he was a a professor at union theological seminary who pioneered the idea of black theology who walked through the uh, african-american history and and proved like how this is an actual distinct theology based on god like loving the powerless god hearing the cries of slaves who would never ever cease uh freedom in on this earth but felt like peace and joy and excitement about knowing they'd see freedom in the next world. Like they were able to live lives like that and how we can draw from that in current situations. Um, So I I would say you don't have to check your um, personality at the door for this name of of Christ. I mean, for the name of the people in power, maybe definitely in the name of Christ, but I think God's not afraid of, of who you are. Like, you know, the scripture says we have overcome by the blood of the lamb in the word of our testimony like we are we are our stories like we are like jesus is in there too like that's what makes him so big and beautiful is that he his the gospel can be shown and um it can shine in every single context and we we are we've adopted a a faulty theology if we feel like one like method is better than the other or one ethnicity is better than the other and one ethnicity should be trusted and given the most power over the other so like that's that's kind of the baseline and otherwise i'd say like lean into your like claire huxtable like get sassy with people (laughs) like you know don't be afraid like i didn't realize how much i was like holding back my snark and my humor and like just the basic like are you serious like the, the what i was raised in like i was raised amongst strong black women and i felt like i had to leave a lot of that at the door um because it was too much for the people i was surrounding myself with and with that i say like if 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 everywhere you go you're being called to like um change or like fold into like what's acceptable for the majority then maybe you should find different spaces um and and I, I just say, like, lean into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lean into the Beatitudes, like I mentioned earlier. Lean into, like, him saying, you know, when I was hungry, you you uh, fed me. When I was thirsty, uh, I think I'm, I don't think I'm quoting properly. Sorry, theologians, but um, theologians. But I, one of my favorite stories is when Jesus approaches the woman at the well and talks about how he saw her. Um, and not only did he see her, but he asked something of her, um, saying, like 
what like you have value to me like what you do um even, like even with your story even with your past even with your marginalized status in society i need you to provide something for me and f- obviously and by extension my kingdom and i say like don't be afraid like when you realize that you are like a marginalized people group um and know that Jesus needs us in the kingdom as well. Like he needs our perspective. He needs the clarity of vision that you have from not being heard again, from not being uh, listened to again, um, from suffering, you know, in small and large ways. Again, like the kingdom of God needs us and like cling to him and cling to like what he has to say. And don't let your story be boiled down to um, that's a political point and therefore it should be dismissed. Your your story and your testimony is valid. Um, and I, I, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just here to say that you have dignity and, and Jesus affirms that dignity. Um, and, and yeah, allow yourself to be a witness, a powerful one. Yeah. And um, James Cohn is a, is a great um, place to start reading this. And I would add to it, you know, Cornell West. And, um, and, and if folks out mm-hmm. there think that these, you know, you know, liberation theology or whatever, is sort of like a lens that you're putting on the gospel that distorts the essence of the gospel and that um, and, and we all have those lenses right I mean that, that's the thing if you if you read your you do right. the sort of uh, deductive interpret or inductive reading of the Bible right and, and you think you're freeing yourself from all interpretive lenses you are bringing <laughs> an interpretive lens um, to, to your theology and and it's an unavoidable uh, and, and any practices you're bringing your own sort of personal slant to. And so um, Amen. by all means, experience theology through those other lenses. <laughs> that's, that's sort of what my, uh, my advice would be. And I think that, um, you know, you, you're offering up James Cone is, is, a, is a great place to start doing that. Um, I do like to, you know, throw out some recommendations every now and then. I know I didn't ask you to prepare any. If you want to just stick with James Cone, that's fine. <laughs> but I've been watching, I've been catching up with um, the freeform television show Cloak and Dagger. Um, and it's oh. actually quite good. It's a, it's a really terrific little superhero kind of story about um, uh, a, a young white girl and a young black um, boy who are in this um, accident. And they somehow become magically in- interconnected. And I'll let you watch the show to figure out how. And, yeah. and they meet uh, later on in life with these kind of powers emerging and they're drawn to each other. And at one point they have this really pointed um, conversation. I think this is an episode four, if I remember right, um, in which so she's like living this sort of really uh, like low, like homeless life, basically, in, in terms of class. She's like mm. below working class. She's like living in an abandoned building and whatnot. And he has grown up in this like really wealthy uh, life of privilege in a private school and like nice stuff and all that stuff. Um, and he has this really, uh, and she talks about how she's oppressed because she has to steal for a living. Um, and he retorts, he says, well, because you can. Like, I can't even walk into a store uh. <laughs> without mm. everybody thinking. I'm going to steal like everybody's trying to kill me right and and it's really thought-provoking and it reminds me a lot of what you're talking about and I really recommend that show it's uh, it's it's terrific that's Uh, good I don't know Tamara if you have anything that you've been watching or reading that you want to throw into that sure okay um honestly I've been watching Jane the Virgin a lot lately but before that um I and I hear they touch on sociological stuff but I'm only in the first season um I I would recommend James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree is really good. I think if you're looking for just simple empathy, 
and how the cross and the lynching tree are similar like a man despised and loathed by the society he was in uh, being hoisted up and rejected by community like and how black christians have derived a lot of comfort from that uh i recommend that there's michael eric dyson he's written i think tears we cannot stop he wrote that pretty much immediately after the election happened um let's see uh i've been listening to several podcasts there's uh past the mic like i said they were the their extension of the witness the group that i published my um article under and then you also have um the truth's table which is three black women sitting around and they're i think they're they're all theologians in some form or fashion and they just share about uh the christian like christianity and social justice issues and it was actually i remember listening to one of those podcasts um that i i, I kind of i had already been thinking about it but i definitely I said, I'm going to leave my white church. And um, I just say, listen to those. And um, yeah, those are the resources that I've, I've been getting a lot of joy and, and comfort from. And um, I personally have been interested in hearing about Christianity outside of the American church. And there's Christianity all over the world, the African church, the European church, etc. Just to get a vision of, of how God um, is big enough to encompass all of those different cultures. Yeah. Tamara, I really can't thank you enough for your willingness to go here. I mean, it, it's painful, and I um, can't even imagine. And it's cathartic. I, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it's cathartic. I, and, I, and I know that, and I really do appreciate it. Um, it's been great talking to you just on a personal level and, and hearing your voice again. Uh, um, I think you should have your own podcast. <laughs> you, should, uh, you should do much more of this kind of work because you're, you're just awesome. So, um, And anybody who's listening... Um, uh, feel, feel free to uh, comment on the show notes and uh, on Facebook or on the show notes and let us know what you think um, and add your voice to this conversation. But by all means, take what um, Tamara is talking about seriously. Um, Tamara, um, thank you so much. Uh, have a great day. Uh, I really do appreciate you being here. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me. Seriously. Yeah, no, it's been great. Um, and thank you for listening. Uh, my name is always is Danny Anderson. And for Tamara Johnson, um, I am thanking you for listening to the Sectarian Review podcast.